As we come to your word, we give you thanks for the truth of it, the purity of it. We confess our need to be taught by the Lord Jesus every day, to hear him and uh, to be to be continually shaped into his image over time. And so we ask for your patience with us and your help as we listen. Uh, grant us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that believe. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are returning to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, by the way, if you if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one to refer to, there are several at the bottom of that shelf over there. You're welcome to get up and grab one. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 22. Uh, as, as I read this morning, uh, I just want to give you a reminder that there's no group in Israel that welcomed Jesus. Uh, I think all of them would have provisionally welcomed him if he had demonstrated uh, empathy for their views and respect for their views and loyalty to them. He didn't do that. It was obvious from his life and ministry that he was loyal to God the Father and to the Scripture and not to any human tradition. And because of that, he earned, his hate, he earned their hatred and opposition. As we come to this text, it is, uh, I believe, Tuesday of that final week. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he would celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper with his men and teach them. Early Friday morning, he would be arrested in the garden. He would be tried. He would be crucified. He would die and be buried. So it's just hours away. It's just hours away. Um, Let's read verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel together about how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Therefore, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not. But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So the Pharisees set a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees set a trap for Jesus. They go and they take counsel together. If that verse sounds familiar, you might be thinking of Psalm 2-2. The kings of the earth take their stands, take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Now that happens in the hearts and the lives of the wicked all the time. It continues to happen that way today. But we see it fulfilled here. We actually see that taking place. Um, they came up with the perfect plan. 
Here it is. Here's their perfect plan. There's kind of two parts to it. The first is that they're not going to personally confront Jesus. They're going to send their disciples. They're going to send students. They're going to catch him off guard. And they're going to send those disciples along with Herodians. Now, Herodians were not a religious party. Herodians were politically oriented. Uh, They were those who supported the authority of the Herods, King Herod and Herod Agrippa and all that. Uh, The Herodians and the Pharisees typically despised each other. The Pharisees hated the Herods. Most of the Jews did. Um, They're hostile to each other. They're not friends. So if Jesus sees a bunch of, of junior cadet Pharisees and Herodians coming together, well, there's nothing to worry about. It just completely disarms him. And then once that's been done, then they, they coach the disciples on how to flatter Jesus and get him off guard. So they're going to call him teacher, even though they rejected his authority. They're going to say, we know that you're truthful, even though they, they didn't believe a word he said. They're going to say, we know that you teach the way of God and truth, even though they followed only their own traditions. They're going to say, we know that you defer to no one. That's probably why they hated Jesus so much. That's probably the single reason for all of the hatred and animosity. Jesus just refused to defer to them. Jesus refused to say, you know, I'm the new guy on the scene, and I haven't been around, and what I'm teaching is brand new, and boy, the Pharisees have been here for centuries. Let's hear what they have to say. He wouldn't do that. And then finally, Jesus, or or they would say to him, we know that you're partial to no one. Literally, that says, we know you don't look at people's faces. And what they mean by that is Jesus is unconcerned by how people respond. He doesn't pay any attention to it. Preaching is an interesting thing. I noticed this. I I started preaching 30 years ago in a little church in Central California. And um, uh, we are always unaware of what our faces are doing. Well, you only see me, but I see all of you. And Penny's always usually got a smile. And other people kind of look stern. And sometimes you, you start thinking, well, the people who look stern, they're, what did I say? Did I? And sometimes they're thinking about the roast. And they're not paying attention to me at all. And somebody might be smiling to me thinking of what an idiot I am. And so as, as you speak publicly, you see people looking back and you're always trying to gauge and you have to learn just to stick with the plan. Well, Jesus didn't look at people's faces. He wasn't concerned with how other people saw him and he never spoke with the goal of, of trying to get people to, to come to his side. He simply told them the truth. He spoke the word of God in truth and love. So there's the plan. We're going to send the junior disciples to him, and we're going to have them flatter him. And that's going to completely disarm him. And now the trap is set. And then they spring the trap in verse 17. Therefore, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? 
Now, I would really love it if you were able to close your eyes and hear them chuckle because they're really confident they've got him now. There simply is not a good answer to this. They've caught him. Why is this such a dilemma? Well, the Roman Empire dominates the entire Mediterranean region, North Africa and the Near East and the Mediterranean European countries. They dominate Eastern Europe and Europe. They're only a decade away from invading Great Britain. The Roman Empire is enormously powerful. Every people that they conquered was required to pay tributes and taxes. Those taxes had to be paid in Roman currency, Roman coinage. Those coins bore the, the image of the emperor. On this particular day, the emperor is Tiberius Julius Augustus Caesar. So the coin that they would have paid it had his facial profile on the front. On the back, it had the, the facial profile of a woman. Scholars think it probably was his mother, Livia. On the front was an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Son of divine Augustus. Because they believed that Augustus Caesar was God. Tiberius Augustus Caesar, the son of God. Then on the back there was an inscription. That inscription read Pontiff Max. That's short for Pontifex Max, which is Latin for Supreme High Priest. So this coin is not just money. It's a religious object. It identifies Caesar Augustus as God and Tiberius as his high priest. Well, the first commandment says you shall have no other gods. The second commandment says you, sh you won't make any images of something to worship. These coins are religious objects. A Jew can't possibly even touch one of these coins. It's defiled. Uh, um, take yourself back in history. Imagine uh, during the time of David, maybe, when the kingdom was doing pretty well. You're walking along the, the countryside, maybe in the western part of the Judean foothills, and you stumble over something, and you, you bend down, and you pick it up, and you've just stumbled over a, a statue of Baal that somebody dropped, or a statue of Dagon. You, you would consider yourself defiled. You would have to go to the temple and offer sacrifices to be cleansed for even touching this thing. So Jesus Tell us, what do you think? Can we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That coin is a religious object. You're just about worshiping an idol to even touch it. How can you do that? If Jesus says, pay the tax, he's encouraging the people of Israel to commit idolatry. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, He's encouraging the people of Israel to commit treason. See, he can't answer. And they, they just kind of straighten their lapels and sit back and just wait for him to throw up his hands in defeat. But Jesus, verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? I've already pointed out Psalm 2, 2. 
that men took counsel against Yahweh and his anointed one, in Psalm 33.10, we, we see the fulfillment of what Jesus just did. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the people. You can't win a war of wits against God. You can't, you can't outthink him. You can't outargue him. You can't outclever God. Psalm 21.30, or Proverbs 21.30, excuse me, says there is no wisdom against Yahweh. There is no discernment against Yahweh. There is no counsel against Yahweh. There's no wisdom against Yahweh. There's no discernment against Yahweh. There's no counsel against Yahweh. There's no way for you to win this argument. There's no wisdom that will give you the upper hand. There's no discernment or cleverness that you can figure out to win. There, there is no counsel that will stand. Moreover, Isaiah 11.2 says this about Jesus, and it was fulfilled in him. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. That happens when he's baptized. This Holy Spirit comes upon him as a dove. And then Isaiah goes on to describe the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Jesus has the spirit of Yahweh, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. You simply cannot get the upper hand with him as much as they thought that they could. They're unable to trap him. And he knows that they're there because of their wickedness. And then he calls them hypocrites. Why does he call them hypocrites? Because they pay these taxes all the time. Nobody has ever objected to paying these taxes. Nobody has ever said these coins are wicked. The zealots objected to Roman rule, but not for religious reasons. They objected because of political reasons. So, these people who say, how can you even touch this coin? It's wicked. They use them all the time. They're hypocrites. They paid the taxes. The Sadducees paid the taxes. The chief priests paid the taxes. Jesus paid the taxes. His disciples paid the taxes. Everybody paid taxes to Caesar except Caesar's family and maybe his close friends. Everybody else has to pay. So it's a non-issue. And we see that Jesus catches them in their own trap. He says to them, show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. They had a denarius. They had something that had the, the, the detestable object. It had the face and the claim that Tiberius is God. They had one with them. And they show it to him. And I just imagine Jesus held it up and said, whose image is this? And they said, well, Caesar's. And then he said, whose inscription is that? He shows them. Well, that's Caesar's. And he says, well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So here's, here's what Romans 13.1 says. It says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And then Paul tells us why. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist have been appointed by God. All authority, period, comes from God. That's not limited to good, godly, wholesome governments. And by the way, if you ever find a good, godly, wholesome government, would you tell me? So I can go there? It applies to every government that exists, no matter how wicked and corrupt they are. Did God design them to be wicked and corrupt? No. They'll face his judgment for it. 
but they bear his authority. Tiberius was placed on the Roman throne by God's decree. George Washington served two terms as our first president by God's decree. Donald Trump and Joe Biden both took the oath of office by God's decree. People say today, Biden stole the election. If he did, it was by God's decree. That's what scripture says. We're always better off yielding to what the word says. The sovereign decrees of God are not just theological and theoretical. They're practical. They affect every day. Why is Penny in need of this surgery today and not 30 years ago? By the sovereignty of God. Why are all of us here today by the sovereign decree of God? Which means there's something in this message for every one of you to hear and for me to hear. So let me be clear about this. We have every right and responsibility as American citizens to vote. As Christians, we ought to vote biblically and according to biblical principles, Christian principles. Apart from that, we're required by our Lord and Savior to submit to the government and to intercede for those who serve. Sometimes governing authorities think that they have Christians at their mercy. North Korea would would be an example of that. A man who thinks that he's got Christians... At his mercy. I was shocked. According to Open Doors, which is a, an organization that works with the persecuted church. According to, uh, see, now I don't have to just use my sleeve. Now I can do that. And then I have a trash can. So according to Open Doors, there are 400,000 Christians in North Korea. 400 thousand in north korea you take your life in your hand if you go to north if you're north korean and tell somebody you're a christian there are four hundred thousand of them now north korea was formed 69 years ago north korea was formed 69 years ago it's been through three regimes of dictators who've done everything that they could to stamp out Christianity, and there's 400,000 there. I don't think that they're all over the age of 70. I don't think that they're simply the survivors. Jesus is building his church everywhere he intends to. China has done a huge amount to try and uh, defeat and diminish Christianity. There, there's well over 90 million Christians in China. You, you just can't squish it down, no matter how hard they try. They can't do anything to us that God does not permit. Without question, I'll say this too, governments often overstep their boundaries. They often overstep their boundaries. But the truth is, when they go too far, they tend to collapse. Soviet Union existed in its initial form for about 30 years. Stalin died in 1953, and as soon as he died, the leaders that existed began bringing in reform. It took time, and it certainly is not perfect. But they simply could not keep that level of violence going. China's was really only about 20 years of the really ugly violent stuff. It was destroying them. And in the 80s, they began saying, we have to have some reform. 
not only for the sake of how do you feed people, but we got half a billion people here in 1980, and if they figure this out, we're in trouble. So they have to permit a certain amount of freedom. That doesn't mean that when a, a corrupt government falls, it's replaced with a good government. I don't mean that. I'm just saying that they can't last very long. So Jesus commands them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What are Caesar's? Well, in the passage, what belongs to Caesar is money. And I spent some time this week just thinking about what do governments ultimately have a right to? And what I ended up with is governments have a right to money and land and a certain loyalty from their citizens. And that's about it. They might grab more, but they can't hang on to it for very long. And I think ultimately what governments ultimately are after is the money. You have to have the money to function. We protect the borders so that we can protect our economy. We go to war to protect our economy. That's typically why we've gone to war. Or to protect ourselves, to protect our borders. But ultimately it's about collecting taxes, claiming territory, and keeping people kind of in line. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, Jesus says. That's the question that he answers. They pose an unanswerable question to Jesus. Jesus answers the unanswerable question. But he's got more to say. He wasn't done with them. And that was really the minor part of the answer. The major part of the answer is render to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but that's minor. That's minor. That's petty. That's little stuff. Render to God the things that are God's. That's the big stuff. Well, what belongs to God? Well, let's see. Genesis 14, 19 says God is uh, possessed, possessor of heaven and earth. Exodus 9:29 says the earth is Yahweh's. Exodus 19:5 says God says all the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to Yahweh belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God says in Job 41.11, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. So we could listen to it and say, Okay, God gets the heavens and the earth and everything in the earth, but he doesn't get me. I am a free agent. I'm a human being. I'm a man. I'm a woman. So I'm on my own. God doesn't get me. Nope. He gets everything that's in it and everyone who is in it. <coughs> everything belongs to him by virtue of him creating it all. There's nothing in heaven, nothing in the earth, nothing under the earth that doesn't belong to him. Every object, every mineral, every item belongs to him. Every creature belongs to him. Every human being belongs to him. Every beat of your heart, every breath in your lungs, every thought in your head, every emotion that you feel belongs to him. That's pretty simple. But I want you to think about the picture that is suggested in this passage. Jesus has them produce a Roman coin. Show me the coin used for the tax. And he points to it and he says, whose image is stamped here? Caesar's. Whose inscription is stamped here? Caesar's well is is there a place where God has stamped his image 
Well, according to the Bible, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The image of God is stamped on human beings. Every person is created in his image. He made mankind male and female. That's the only two choices. And it's not a choice, it's the reality. He stamped his image on us. So forget the coin. Look at yourself. The image of God is stamped there. And there's an inscription. Let's talk about the inscription. Romans 2, 12 and 13 gets us started. For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So God gave his law to the Jewish people, that they would obey it. But he didn't give it to the rest of mankind. Which raises a couple of questions. First, how can God reasonably expect Gentiles to know and keep his law when he didn't give it to them? And second, how can he fairly judge people according to a law they don't have? Good question. Paul goes on, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the written law given by Moses, naturally do the things of the law, they become a law to themselves. In that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts. So God has not only stamped us with his image, he has inscribed us with his moral character. It was clear in Adam. It's become obscured in us. It's like looking at a 2,000-year-old a papyri of, of the New Testament where it's torn and faded and the letters are hard to read and it's scratched and letters are worn away but it's it's there everybody expects their children to be respectful everybody there's not a person on the face of the earth who gives birth to a child raises that child and rejoices when that child screams and rails and throws tantrum and hates them nobody it doesn't matter how liberal they are Nobody wants that. Everybody knows that murder is wrong. Now, there's different definitions for what murder is. But everybody knows that murder is wrong. The most sexually perverse people in the world still, still feel betrayed when their partners cheat. How can that be? If everything is okay, if, if you want it and it's good and it's good, you can go for it. If all of that's good then why would anybody feel hurt and betrayed and wounded when their partner, which doesn't exist anyway, cheats on them? It shows that the law of God is written in their heart. Everyone knows that stealing is wrong. Everyone knows that lying is wrong. Where did that knowledge come from? Oh, we were raised with this culture. The culture has confined us. No, nobody had to teach you that. Nobody had to teach you that. It's been inscribed in us. The, the creator has marked us with his own image by stamping it upon us. He's inscribed his law within our hearts. So what should we do? Well, it's clear from the text. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give him yourself. 
For the time being, at least, forget the money, forget the property, forget the skills, forget the talents. He wants you. He wants you. So there are people who say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I've done nothing worth giving. I haven't lived the kind of life anybody would want to have. Which all gets it wrong. That says, there's something that's in my pocket that belongs to God. It's my money, it's my time, it's my skills, it's my talents, it's my ideas. It's you. That's what he wants, is you. That's what we pray for for our kids and for our grandkids, that they would know that God wants them. Not for them to do things, he wants them. Jesus' answer stuns his listeners. Hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Marveling doesn't mean that they thought it was marvelous. It means that they're stunned into silence. They simply don't know how to respond. He did to them by giving them truth what they wanted to do to him by lying and manipulating him. It just shut him up. What shut them up was not the answer about Caesar. What shut them up was the answer about God. God wants you. He owns you. He stamped you with his image. And he has inscribed his character upon your heart. And he wants you. You belong to him. He's marked you as his. And they walk away saying, I don't know how to respond to that. There is only one response. That response is to get down on your knees, figuratively or literally, and give your life to him. That's the response. But they walk away. As we bring this home, Jesus continues to speak in his his word to us today. Our Caesar has certain claims. That's true. And as long as those claims don't contradict scripture, we are to render to Biden what is Biden's. But God has a greater claim. And that's a claim that is upon us. Even in our natural birth, we're stamped with his image. And he inscribes his moral law within us. When we're born again, he begins to stamp a new image upon us. He has predestined believers to become conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we, he, we who behold the face of Jesus in the truth of the word are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Uh, somewhere at home, I don't know why I bought this, a few years ago, I think I was thinking of, uh, of giving it to one of the grandkids, but I, I bought a proof set. Uh, a proof set is uh, a sampling of typical American coins. I think there's a dollar, there's a half dollar, there's a quarter, dime, nickel, penny, right? Um, it's called a proof set because they're stamped more, they're stamped extra, they're stamped in a different way. Three times? They're stamped three times. So they're not just formed and then handed out. That's sufficient. They really get the image clear and shiny. And they're, they're, they're sealed up so you can't touch them and cause them to corrode. And they're really pretty. I mean, they're really, really well done. The Holy Spirit, the moment we believe, the Holy Spirit begins to stamp Christ into us. And he never stops. And that image becomes clearer over time. 
That's the process of sanctification, of having that image stamped within us. He often uses suffering and times of difficulty and pain in our lives to, to create that image. When they make a proof set, they, they start with a blank that's ready to go. He doesn't start with a blank, does he? He starts out with something that's already been marked and marred. And so it takes a lot of stamping, takes a lot of hits with that die and hammer to not only produce his image, but to remove the old image. I can tell you from personal experience, the pain of resisting him is always worse than the pain of what he does. You can look at your life and you can say, I can, I can see the image beginning to appear. <clears throat> we're not made of silver and gold and things that are soft and easily managed. We're, we're made of something harder than diamond. We're made of something that doesn't want to give up its image. But the Spirit of God is faithful and he continues to sanctify us. He continues to transform us. And no matter how far you think you get in this life, the hand of God is raised, the arm of God is raised, his sleeve is rolled up, and he's holding that hammer in his hand, and he's got the die in the other hand. And with your final breath comes the final blow. And then he takes you up off of that holder, and you're exactly like his son. He's faithful. He will continue to do that. My prayer for us today is that we would accept that that we would accept that the pains and the suffering and the difficulties and the frustrations that we go through are, are him trying to efface and remove the old image and to, to substitute the image of his son in its place. The spirit doesn't need our cooperation. He'll, he'll transform us whether we want him to or not. Better if we want him to. And over time, as we see the image of Christ appearing in ourselves, certainly as we see it appear in, in others, it's encouraging. And we're able to say to one another, at least hang in, hang in there, hang on. I can see it being formed in you. It's getting clearer day by day. It's getting clearer month by month and year by year. It's getting clearer. Don't give up. Don't quit. And I have to think that as we get closer to that image, the blows become, in a sense, less forceful and more precise. Because he's not trying to form an image and then destroy it and form it and destroy it and form it. He's just creating at one time. We can trust him to do that.